Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Fat Chicks on Top. You are here with your host, Auntie Vice. It's great to be here and great to be back. We are at the start of Kink Month, which was started by the Stockroom. Um, and I am kicking it off with a bang. I'm here with uh, Janet Hardy, and she has been such a huge part of my own kink journey. Uh, those of you who listen will probably have read The Ethical Slut. Um, if you're of my generation, the topping book, the bottoming book. If you're of the newer generations, the new topping book, the new bottoming book. Uh, she's been a publisher, a teacher, influencer, just brilliant. Um, and I have her here today to talk about her new book that will be out by the time the show is out, uh, Notes from an Aging Pervert, which I have to say I loved. Welcome to the show. Hi, good to, have, good to, good to be here. So, um, you know, you're, you've written so much about this, and your your latest book um, is really reflections on aging and getting older. And it's so nice to see aging kinky people out there. <laughs> God, it's nice. Well, we do that, uh, you know, unless we die, we pretty much get older. It's <laughs> so... What was the thing that surprised you most about getting older that you weren't prepared for? Um, it's a good question that I haven't really thought about. Uh, I think the shifts in my energy, my activity levels, um, my stress levels, I, I'm just not used to the frantic life anymore. Since we're talking today, I had a couple of urgent things happen in the last 48 hours, and this is the stressiest couple of days I've had in years. You know, normally, my life these days is very calm, which after all those years of running around to parties and speaking engagements and 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 publisher meetings, um, I like it. <laughs> I like leading a, a calmer life. I don't like it when it gets too calm, and I will get in there and shit disturb if, if things start to seem too steady to me. But uh, my my threshold of appropriate calm has changed. And I, I think that's the surprise. So I know I've been out and teaching about aging and chronic illness, because it's something I deal with, um, and kink. And you bring up energy levels right off, which is huge. And I found, at least for me and a lot of people who I talk to in my classes, having to deal with not having the energy they had at 30 and 40 is really pressing. How'd you learn to cope with it? And was it a blessing that you weren't finally running around or was it harder to let some of that go? 
Um, I don't think that's an either or question. I think it is both a blessing and a frustration. Um, yeah, I've I've always thought of myself as someone who can pretty much do anything I put my mind to do, which, you know, some of the things that I do, I don't do quite as well as other things that I do. But mostly, if there's something I want to do, I figure out a way to do it. And now it's still true, but it also means I'm going to be paying for it for a lot longer afterwards than I ever have had before. So so some of the things I might otherwise like to do, I don't do just because I don't feel like dealing with the recovery period. You know, I used to delight in doing little repairs and handyman stuff around the house. And I still do a little bit of that, but A, I'm not really very good at it. And there's more money now, so I don't have to do it all myself. And B, it just fucks up my body. And I'm I'm tired of that. It, well, and that's that's a bad pain. So one of the things you talk about, not only in this book, but in others, is being able to sit with good pain yes, versus absolutely. bad pain. And I think for a lot of people, especially those who are not masochist or who play a lot in King, don't understand that distinction. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, it's it's hard to describe the difference. Um, there have been studies done in which someone um, set it up quite cleverly, where the study subject was being asked to hold on to a metal rod um, that could be heated. And at the same time, they were having their brain scanned. And at the moment that the pain got to, to be too much, they would just open their hand and that would be that. It would be done. Um, so what the study was designed to do was to try to track pain in the absence of distress. Um, and what they found is that when people feel like they're in control of their pain or it's expected or it's manageable, then yeah, the pain centers of their brain light up, but so do the reward centers. Uh, I've read a, an interview with the author of the study who said, well, rah, 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 I suppose that might have some application to say to masochism, but that's not really the topic of our study. And I'm just sitting there going, well, shit, man, if you'd asked us, we could have told you. Um, but, uh, you know, I work often, I, I work once a week with a, a certified athletic trainer who is great and who really appreciates the fact that I can tell him, uh, no, if we do this this way, my thumbs are going to be screwed and I'm not going to be able to work for a few days because my thumbs hurt. Um, but on the other hand, yeah, this hurts, but it's something I will recover from. Then keep going. Uh, and it's just something you sort of learn by doing. and knowing that you can stop it when it needs to stop helps you keep going, which is why we, one of the many reasons, but one good reason to have a safe word is that it gives the person receiving the sensation that sense that I can go farther with this because I know I can stop it if I have to. You mentioned your physical trainer in the book. You also mention you have a masseuse who can really get in there. And I just came back from my masseuse. She's a submissive in the community. And it's one of the reasons I love going to her because I can say yellow or red and she knows exactly what that means versus just groaning as she digs her elbows into me. Yep, uh, yep, yep. Um, I don't have that masseuse anymore. He retired during COVID because his wife didn't want him to get vaccinated. Um, but 
the one I had in the Bay Area was also a community person. And we did one session together. He had two offices at the time, one in San Francisco and one in Berkeley. The one in San Francisco was a group office with other body workers and other customers there. Uh, whereas the one in Berkeley was the attic of an old house that he rented. Uh, we did the first one in San Francisco and decided at the end of that appointment that it would probably be better to do these in Berkeley because I tend to make a lot of noise and I was alarming people. So after that, we did them in Berkeley and I could make as much noise as I wanted to. Um, catharsis to me is one of the big benefits to good pain is it gives a container where you can let loose. And I'm normally a rather reserved person. And so having that safe space to not be reserved was a huge, huge thing for me. And that catharsis can help, you know, people who explore catharsis in kink um, and pursue those type of things will tell you it's it's a place they really do feel much more free to express those emotions. Were you able to take what you learned in the, the kink setting, that kind of catharsis, and apply it to other areas of your life? Because as you get older, and you, again, you talk about this in your new book, but most of us who lived through the first wave of AIDS experience, you, when you lose friends, there is a grief yeah. that can be hard to get out. Did you find any parallels for yourself? Um, I talk a little bit about this in the book. Grief is not an, ex uh, an experience that I have a lot of familiarity with. Um, I'm mostly, you know, I miss my friends when they go, but I, I don't regret their death. I don't mourn them per se. Um, cause I don't believe they're really gone. Uh, I think that they are still around. I don't understand exactly the, the, um, metaphysics of where they are and how they are, but I'm pretty sure that once we, I, I talk about this at some length, uh, once we leave our bodies, we are no longer stuck in space and time, which means that everybody is everywhere all the time. Uh, so the friends that leave, you know, if, if they leave before they're ready, I feel bad about that. And I would rather that that not happen. But I'm lucky in that most of the important people in my life that I've lost left when it was time for them to leave. Uh, my father did um, assisted suicide after a cancer diagnosis. And my mother did her best to do the same. Uh, she was living in a different state, so couldn't pursue that because at the time it was not legal there. Um, but people who leave when their bodies or their spirits say, okay, this is enough of this, and they leave with agency, I can't mourn that. I can miss them. And I do miss them often. But when it's time, it's time. And we're all gonna. and once we're not stuck in space and time, we get to do the other thing, um, which I don't, because I'm stuck in space and time too, and my little bitty meat brain cannot possibly encompass what life would be like without space and time. I don't know what that's going to be like, but I'm pretty sure it's there. And I think the place where my kink life intersects with my aging and dying life is that the ecstatic experiences I've had during my kink play and other forms of, um, let's say, graduate school sex, um, I think those were a glimpse. I think those were a, a millisecond glimpse uh, about what that is going to be like. And having had that, I feel much calmer about the prospect of going back. In in the book, I talk about thinking about my life on in body as a vacation, and the body is like my resort wear. 
you know, it's it's a nice pair of shorts. It's sun. It's a sundress. It's comfortable. Um, and when the vacation is over, I take it off and go back to whatever my real existence is. And you you brought that up in in the the spaces in the book where you're talking about what you've experienced in terms of radical ecstasy. You referenced the book Radical Ecstasy, which you wrote. Got it. What twenty years ago now? It's. We're, we're, so- we just got word that we're going to be working on a new edition. So that, look look for a new edition in a year or two. Uh, in exploring that and in in those moments where you were able to experience it, was that the point where you began to understand that that might be uh, a glimpse into what's the next chapter for us? Or was th- it only as you got older? Uh, no, I, I, well, of course... Now, I, th- I think it was um, something that became clear to me at the time. Well, I think it became clear to me when I had the uh, major Kundalini event that I describe at some length in the book, which would have been, yeah, you know, when we were working on radical ecstasy, which would have made it, oh, late 80s. So, yeah, it's been a while, uh, 15 years, I guess, at least. So, yeah, that... At the time that I had that happen, and I can describe that for your listeners if you want, but at that time, I was feeling very broken by it. I I didn't feel that I had been well taken care of at the time, and I still don't think I was well taken care of at the time, um, and I could not see any upside to that experience. But as I lived with it, and in particular started apply, applying it to my life, I started seeing the ways in which it had changed me for the better. Um, Of course, it also led to my sort of resigning from the sexual part of my life, um, which I have mixed feelings about as well, but it seems to be okay so far. That was one of the things that surprised me, right? In Cake, we we focus so much on, on sex and sexuality, and you talk about how it's just that aspect of your life has kind of teetered out in some ways. Um, so to speak, yes. Um, so, so, so to speak, yes. Um, I, I sort of feel like I took the train all the way to the last station, and that was the end of the journey. And I could be wrong. There could be a crosstown bus on its way to take me somewhere else. But as I sit here right now, I feel like that journey was amazing in more ways than I can possibly speak about. Um, And it's done. And I'm okay with that. And you talk about your your current marriage and stuff and new forms of intimacy. So for a lot of folks, especially for, you know, we have a huge number of listeners under 40, the idea of having no sex in a marriage is horrible, right? I was in a lesbian relationship that had bed death. There's a lot of us who've experienced it. Yeah, um, it's not it's not um, unique to lesbians, by the way. I think dead death is no. pretty close to inevitable in a long term relationship. I think sex can continue, but you're never going to hit those highs that you did when you were young and infatuated with each other, or old and infatuated with each other. You talk about other types of intimacy, and so where are you finding as you age? How are you making those those kind of deep, intimate connections with partners? Because it doesn't sound like that's gone. Uh, no, it isn't. And Edward and I mesh in a lot of very profound ways uh, that don't track necessarily to most people's idea of intimacy. Um, there's a meme I saw on Facebook that 
it was something about marriage being having your weird best friend for a sleepover that never ends. And that is kind of exactly what it feels like. Um, you know, we mesh domestically, we mesh on our values, which is not to say we never disagree. We, of course, we disagree, but we're coming from a very similar mindset. We're at similar places in our lives. He's older and less able than I am, which is good because if I were in the same kind of shape he is, we would be in trouble. Um, but it's just easy. I have been in my, my first marriage was also essentially a companionate marriage. We did have sex, but it wasn't great sex. Um, and once I came out into BDSM or SM as we called it at the time, and he tried to follow me there and couldn't, uh, and we ended the marriage, we got to be, you know, I, I think what he and I were always meant to be was friends. And once we quit trying to be spouses, we got to be friends again. Um, and we raised our kids you know, with joint physical and legal custody because we're great co-parents. And he continues to be a good friend. Uh, and so that kind of relationship for me is a better fit. The one I had in between my first husband and Edward was a much more passionate um, and chemistry-laden relationship that was outside of the dungeon or the bedroom kind of a disaster. And of the two, I know which one I pick. And you can tell because I went back to that one. You know, if I want steaming hot sex, then I can go somewhere else for that. There's lots of people around there who can around here who can provide that, but that's not what I want in my day-to-day -day life. And I I really understand that. And I think that's one of the appeals of polyamory and ethical non-monogamy is for a lot of folks, really that day-to-day -day is much more of a, a friendship and a deep connection, but yes. the sex is not necessarily great. Um, so you have written the canonical text for ethical non-monogamy of the ethical slut, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this as the tome. I remember when it came out and reading it and going, oh my God, like I got that and, and Tristan Terramino's opening up and those are like, it, and I know there's other ones that have come into fad, but you're kind of at the tome. Those, um, those are kind of the, yeah. Yeah. Did you, expect the discussion about non-monogamy to explode like it has nope we thought we were writing another weird little niche book for our weird little niche readers um nobody was more startled than we were when it took off um greenery press which i started and ran for um from 1992 until 2015 um started out as a BDSM press. We pub we opened with publishing my then partner, Jay Wiseman's uh, SM 101 and my sexually dominant woman. Uh, and what happened was we caught the wave of interest in BDSM just when it was starting to build and hadn't crested yet. And that kept us going, you know, for the 25 years I ran the press. Uh, and then slut, Again, we did the same thing. We just dumb luck happened to catch it right when the wave was starting to build. And, you know, I look at my sales reports every year on that book and it still continues to climb. Uh, 25 years later, it's getting more and more readers every, every quarter, which is, you know, almost unheard of. 
Well, and you've done that with a lot of books. I interviewed uh, Midori a couple months yes. back, and she is very open that, you know, you and I, her have talked. And if you would have had any idea the profound impact of the art of Japanese seduction, she got amazing deal on that book with you. And yes, she did. Um, yeah, at the time, I had real concerns about whether the book would have legs or not. I thought, you know, there's... Uh, you know, enough people in the country who are interested in this that I can uh, pay for a, a, a good sized press run, which you have to do if you're doing color, you have to send it overseas. And that means a large press run. But I really was not sure it was going to sell after that. And boy, it's still selling. Um, so yeah, some of those, uh, the greenery just happened to catch the wave. And I would like to pretend it's because of my brilliance as an acquisitions editor. It is not because of my brilliance as an acquisitions editor. I, I am a good acquisitions editor, but I cannot read the future any more than anybody else can. I just happened to follow my own interests that led into other people's interests as well. That was what I was going to ask, because a lot of folks I've talked to have credited you with really being able to read the tea leaves and figure out where all of this is going. Um, do you think that's possible at this point? Or I would say my instincts are better than most people's, but boy, I could give you a list of the books I thought were going to sell a zillion copies that uh, died on the shelf. Um, so, you know, my track record was decent when all was said and done, but that did not mean that I didn't misread the market dozens of times. Now, I mean, compared to when I was initially exploring kink in like the late eighties, early nineties, like you had to go to the oh, gay bookstores and yeah. And, and go into the back sections to find yes. any of this stuff. Right. And bring um, it to the register was, in the middle of a pile of, of vanilla books so that the clerk wouldn't notice what you were buying, like any clerk ever fails to notice what you're buying. Well, and even when uh, Art of Japanese Seduction came out, I was in New York at the time, and I can remember still like waiting for that to hit the shelves and just yes. like, which bookstores are going to have it and everything. Now there's such a plethora of information. Yes. How do you read the current market on there? Because with self-publishing, we no longer have gatekeepers if we don't want them. I mean, you can yep. still do the traditional publishing route, but a lot of people are putting information out there. So from what you're seeing out there on the market, what would you, what's your general take on, on books on BDSM, right? My take on it from what I've seen, you know, I don't see the greenery sales reports anymore since I retired from running greenery, but at the time that I did retire, which was, um, when I turned so three or four years ago now, um, BDSM was on a down downswing at that time, and I think it still is. Uh, I think we maxed it out during the Fifty Shades era, which was such a gift from the gods for a, a kink publisher. I mean, sales on every kink-related book went up like 50%, including the female domination ones and the ones that were not directly relevant. They all just went off the charts. And it's never going to be like that again. I think we sort of reached all the people that had any interest in kink at that time. And now we're back into a holding pattern. And then COVID, of course, took a chunk out of it too, in that a lot of the places where people went to learn about kink or to meet other kinky people uh, were not functioning at that time. And they haven't quite reached their previous levels again yet. So I don't really see 
kink as a growth industry right now, which is not to say it may not hit that again. But if I were still choosing books to publish, I would not be looking at kink books with the uh, enthusiasm that I was back in the day. What has changed is the growth in non-monogamy books and various relationship books. Um, do you have an idea of why that is exploding at this point in time? I mean, there's different theories out there, but my my well, there's a bunch of different reasons too. Yeah. But my my pet theory is that as a culture, and often unconsciously, we are realizing that we were sold a bill of goods about the functionality of the nuclear family. Uh, You know, there's a lot of people in culturally powerful places who still toot the horn of family values. And what they mean by family values is the way reasonably affluent white people lived for about the middle of the 20th century. And that has never worked any time outside that population and that time frame. Um, you know, I I remember when my mom was alive, I mentioned this theory to her once, and she sort of bridled and said, well, it worked okay in my family growing up. And I said, mom, you had servants. And it had never occurred to her that that made that not a nuclear family. But for a lot of the human race, uh, servants were part of a family. For a lot more of the human race, uh, families were extended families of sisters and cousins and aunts. Um Two adults trying to earn money and raise children and maintain a household, it's it can't be done without outside help. It, it is an impossible goal that we have allowed the culture to set for us. And then we are encouraged to beat ourselves up when it fails. It's obviously our fault because this is easy to do. It is not easy to do. It's impossible to do. Um, and so whether or not we recognize that that's one of the things that's driving us, I think that's a big one of the thing, things that's driving us. And what I care about most in poly is not um, the sex. I mean, you know, so you get to have lots of sex with lots of people, big fucking deal. Uh, it's, it's, you know how to make yourself come. You can do that. Um, but what does matter is having this extended circle of people who care about you and who will pick up the slack when you can't and who will take care of you when you're sad or broken. Um, I tell people a lot about my co-author, Dossie, who has had now a couple of major surgeries to her spine. I mean, major, the kind where you're out of it for months. And during the time that she's been recovering from those surgeries, she was never alone unless she asked to be. There was a circle of friends and lovers and kids and lovers, friends and lovers, kids and friends, friends that were all there to make sure that she didn't need something that she couldn't have. Uh, and that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way I, during my first marriage, I was fortunate enough to be part of um, an extended family that all lived within say a half hour drive. Um, and it was wonderful. I I don't think I had to hire an outside babysitter 10 times during the years that my kids were growing up because there was usually somebody in the family who would be happy to take them for an evening so Frank and I could go to movies or whatnot. Um, And we could vacation together and so on. I remember the family owned and still owns a beach house in Santa Cruz, California. Um, 
And I remember going there with my kids and my husband and the rest of the family. Uh, the place maxed out at 17 people. So it would be full of grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. And I noticed that my kids were so much calmer and less demanding because they weren't relying entirely on my spouse and me to be the only source of whatever they needed. You know, there were other people around if they needed to help tying their shoe, if they were bored and wanted to play a game, if they wanted a snack, it wasn't all on Frank and me. And that was probably my first real glimmering of, wait, what I'm trying does not work and is not going to work. As we speak, there is concrete being poured in my older son and his wife's backyard for an ADU for my younger son, uh, because they too have reached the conclusion that their nuclear family is not highly functional and that having a third person there to help raise his nephew and um, be the best cook in the house because he's a good cook and do some of the other stuff that needs doing in a household. Uh, So he'll be moving down there within a couple of months. And right now he lives about half a mile from here and I'm going to miss the fuck out of him, but it's so much better for all concerned for him to be down there than it is for him to be up here. Having your mom as your best friend is probably not a great way to go into your midlife, which is where he's at right now. I don't, my partner and I live with my mother. Um, and so, you know. so yeah, I, to- I totally understand. It works. Three adults doing anything works <laughs> so much yeah. better. Yes. Uh, exactly. So. Other things that have changed um, as you've been out and writing about all of this is you now identify as genderqueer and bisexual. And like, you know, in the 90s, bisexuals were like this tiny smidgen of the LGBT community. Like, I remember going to meetings in San Francisco to discuss if we could add the B to the L and the G, right? Of course. (laughs) Um, Between that and like, we've gone from being butch and stone butch and femme and all, now we have gender nonconforming and and genderqueer and all of that. Um, What's your take on the, the, the explosion of all of this new lingo um that people are using um my sense of it is that it reminds me actually a lot of the late 60s early 70s in terms of the culture just exploding into a new set of values and i think what will happen as it does as it did then um the book the women's room which i think is otherwise kind of forgotten but it was a second wave feminist novel and toward the end it uses the metaphor of a balloon and the balloon bursting so that there isn't the pressure behind it anymore but its molecules have gone everywhere and i kind of think you know i think we are chiseling away at rigid gender roles and at the harm they do um I think in many cases, we're being a little over-enthusiastic about it, but we don't know now which ones are going to turn out to be something that sticks around and which ones are going to be, no, something that just doesn't work for real. Uh, Which, you know, that's fine. That's how it happens is we start by exploring the extremes. And as, as we go, we start pulling back or discarding ideas that didn't work. But at the end, the center has shifted. And I may be around to see some of that, but I think it's going to be unfolding for a generation at least. 
you know, all these kids that are growing up experimenting with um, gender nonconformity or transitioning, uh, those are not going to be the same people as parents, as contributors to the culture um, that we have now. They're, they're just going to be coming into it with a very different outlook, which is all to the good. Uh, I think a culture that is as regimented as we are about gender is both damaged and damaging in a lot of ways. So I will be very curious and happy to see the world that is coming. One of the most identifiable parts in your, your new book is talking about having your breast removed. Because yes. you're like, if I get one cancer cell, you're out of here. Right. Yep. Every year when I go for a mammogram, that's the conversation. I'm like, one of you show anything, we're gone. <laughs> yep. yep. Now, I, uh, I, as I say in the book, I actually came into a bit of money a few years ago. Uh, a couple of my, my relatives died and left me more than I ever thought I'd have. And I was having that conversation with my boobs, you know, the one cancer cell conversation. All of a sudden, I thought, I don't have to wait. I have money. I can do it whenever I want. So I contacted some local friends who had had top surgery and got a referral to a doctor up in Portland. And fortunately, I, I've, been, I've heard from other women that they've had surgeons who are reluctant to just lop the whole thing off. But he was not. He was great. Um, actually, I have to tell this story because it utterly made me swoon with delight. Um, the first time I met him for the consultation, um, he had a couple of medical students who were tailing him around for information. And at one point, you know, I'm sitting there on the table, tits to the wind, and we're all talking. And I said, you know, actually, by the time this is all over, um, I will have smaller breasts than my husband because he has gynecomastia. And the doctor immediately crosses his hands over his own tits and said, oh, me too. And then he turns to the medical students and says, you know, in school, they're going to tell you that only women have periods, but my nipples are really sensitive all the time. And there's a few days every month when I can hardly stand to put a shirt on. And I'm sitting going, oh my God, I found myself a sex educator, cosmetic surgeon. How did I get this fucking lucky? I was, I, I fell in love with him at that moment. And he hasn't given me any reason to change my mind. That's phenomenal. Yeah. And I loved it because so many of the, the stories and when you see people posting on social media and stuff, it's all of these, you know, gender nonconforming or trans folks who are like in their twenties. Yeah, and for for those of us who are well past that, it's lovely to know that, like, yeah, you can, and you don't have to do all the. Well, now I'm changing my gender identity or anything. It's just they're gone. You have to do some of those if you want the insurance to pay for it. You either have to have enormous ones that you know are hurting your back which a friend of mine just had hers off because of that. Um, and if that's not you, then you're going to have to pretend to be gender nonconforming at least long enough to convince a therapist um, before your insurance will pick up the tab. It's, it's not necessarily an easy process. I did not have to go through it because I was perfectly prepared to pay out of pocket, but uh, that's, that's the downside. It is. It is. So, one of the reasons I, I've been having, a, I've been trying to pull in people who are over 40. Um, one of the things I really believe is old queers really have a lot to say that the young folks don't know. Um, yeah. 
And, you know, a lot of people I know who are under 40 and who are in the queer community right now is absolutely terrifying, heartbreaking. They've never experienced anything like this. Yeah. Um, those of us a little older have some insight. So you've, you've been around, you've seen a lot of shit. <laughs> what would you say to the young queer folk out there? Actually, I have a story. Um, I was in San Francisco for, uh, I forget what, but I was standing in line for coffee at this sort of tragically hit mission coffee shop with a line out the door uh, while I was waiting for my date to show up. And I was eavesdropping on the conversation going on behind me, because what else did I have to do? And it was a young gay man talking to his friend. And he was talking about having been on a date with a new guy the previous night. And he was very worried because he said, you know, and we wound up making out. And I'm really worried. Is he going to think I'm a slut? And at that point, you know, I was trying to keep my mouth shut. I couldn't. So I turned around and said, A, if you was if you were making out with him, he was making out with you. So he's a slut too. So you're well matched. And B, what has the world come to that a 60-year-old bisexual has to tell a 20-something gay man that it's okay to make out on the first date? <laughs> uh, I think that's the downside to same-sex marriage is it's made a lot of people as heteronormative as heterosexuals, and heterosexuals do not have it right. I'm sorry, they just don't. Um, <laughs> and trying to do it the way they do it is not an advancement. I, that It blows my mind. Like, some of the conservative ends of younger folks, like, blow my mind. My sister called me maybe four or five years ago, and she she's lived in San Francisco for the last 25 years. And said, you know, Beck, what's a power bottom? And I'm like, don't they have that on the LinkedIn pages by now down there? Like, <laughs> in, in, in all fairness to your sister, it is a rare week when I'm not on Urban Dictionary once or twice because someone has used a new term that I hadn't heard about yet. And it's my job to stay on top of these. But um, uh, yeah, no, it's no, it's it's crazy to me how in the queer community, we're really kind of we're getting a whole push for conservative, much more conservative than there were. Yes. Um, do you see that swinging back anytime soon to? I hope so. Um, I see there's a fundamental crack in the world between let's call it binary queerness and non-binary queerness. Um, A lot of people who have always been, you know, Kinsey zeros um, or Kinsey sixes, I'm sorry, uh, who are really uncomfortable with the middle ground, um, with those of us who are gender nonconforming or who judge a potential relationship primarily uh, by the gender of the person we're considering having it with. And those who do not. And I think the folks who are sort of binarily oriented with their, their I'm not even going to say queerness because I tend to use queer for the non-binary people, uh, but let's say their gayness. Um, th there's a lot of judgment. Uh, and until that gets resolved one way or the other, uh, I don't see that rift getting healed much. You know, we still occasionally see 
a brouhaha in the kink community. And I'm sure, you know, I don't even hang out in the kink community much anymore, but I'm sure you're more aware of this than I am, where some group decides that they're sash competition or their party or whatever uh their conference is going to be for um cis men or cis women only and i'm of two minds because on one hand i think if if it's a private event baby you do you if you only want left-handed redheads have fun uh but on the other hand it seems like a very dinosaur way to approach the problem and I don't know when it's going to resolve or how it's going to resolve. There are genuine differences between trans people and cis people. Um, and I think we we don't do ourselves any favors when we get simplistic about a trans woman being a woman or a trans man being a man. And like that's the end of the story, that is not the end of the story. There's all different kinds of ways to be a woman and all different kinds of ways to be a man. And those that's one of them. Actually, that's about three dozen of them that I can think of offhand. Um, but to pretend that there's no difference at all, uh, I don't think that's leading us down a good path. Um, so I don't know how it's going to resolve. Yeah, I I didn't think I would live to see gay marriage, so here I am. Um, and it... It's going to be interesting times in the Chinese curse sense of the word for many of us, but more interesting than prodding along trying to be, you know, John Wayne and Marilyn Monroe, because um, that shit doesn't work for most people. It doesn't. It doesn't. For most of your life, you were California resident, you know, Sacramento, Bay Area, all of that yeah. good stuff, uh, which is where I come from, too. Um, and now you're up in Oregon. Yes. How is and people tend to think northern and northern California has some uniqueness, and we definitely have our own politics. Yes. How has been relocating to Oregon? Uh, Eugene is it's a college town. Uh, it is a very blue town. Uh, you know, depending on what neighborhood you're in, but even the the bluest of the neighborhoods are still pretty blue compared to you know the eastern part of the state, or you know what I'm trying to say. There, there's the cities in Oregon all vote blue. Um, and there are a fair number of other places that do as well in Oregon. But in some ways, it's more visible here because it's a smaller pool of people. So there's a very busy and active um, gender studies department at the university. Uh, there are uh, a couple of my friends run transponder which is the local trans support community uh and so the trans people here tend to be on a whole more visible than in san francisco because they're swimming in a smaller pool um does not mean everybody likes it my my spouse edward was um one of the volunteers at eugene pride which was just a few weeks ago we have our pride in august for reasons lost in the dim mists of history um and there were the usual asshole, you know, proud boy type picketers there, protesters. But the word had gone out ahead of time. As soon as the organization found that these people were planning to be there, um, word went out to everybody who was going to be volunteering there, um, do not engage with these people. And so the way it played out is that 
somebody was around every single protest or any place they went carrying a big sign saying, do not engage. And by lunchtime, early afternoon, they had gotten bored and frustrated and they went home. So I've never seen that situation handled better than that. It was perfect. And so, you know, we it's not like we are clueless. We are not clueless. Um, but there's a weird reluctance, and I've heard this from any number of people who live and work or volunteer in Eugene. Um, my spouse, Edward, was actually co-chair of San Francisco Pride for several years. Um, but when he goes to Pride meetings here and says, well, we tried this in San Francisco and it worked, the attitude is nearly always, well, yes, but this is Eugene. Eugene is different. It's not that fucking different. What works, works. But there's there's a real sort of isolationist quality to Eugene and also a very strong libertarian bent everywhere in, in Oregon. So it's I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily bluer or more liberal in its values than uh, Northern California, but I will say that it is differently blue. One of the things that doesn't get talked about so much in both the kink world and in the queer world is um, ageism, right? Yes. Um, and for for a lot of folks who do dabble in any sort of body liberation stuff, we know there's ageism as women grow older, you know, you kind of disappear and become less sexual and all of that. What has been your experience in those communities, specifically in kink and queer communities? Because we handle elders differently sometimes. We do. Um, in the gay male community, there is a lot of appreciation for older guys. In, in the gay male leather community, that's not necessarily the case in other se other sectors of gay maleness. But in my home communities, the the leather communities, um, a lot of my friends who are gay men in my age bracket are very popular fellows indeed, um, because they have a grounded quality that you know if you're going to open yourself up the way. We hope to open ourselves up in kink. We want that groundedness. We do not want our partners changing their minds or not knowing how to deal with the situation. So someone who's been at this for a double-digit number of years um, just feels safer to play with, I think, for a lot of us. Plus, I think the whole daddy imagery is powerful. Um in in all communities, I don't see mommy kid acted out much in heteroland, but there is some. There's a ton of daddy girl stuff in heteroland, and daddies of whatever gender are popular in both um, lesbian and gay male communities. Um, so I, I don't see ageism as the problem within kink that I do outside it. Um, one thing I talk about a bit in the book is that being the age I am and looking the way I do, I don't get a lot of come-ons from straight guys anymore. And I'm pretty much okay with that. Um, you know, I love a good cruise as well as the next girl. Um there's a cab driver here in town that flirts with me every time he picks me up. And I like that. It's nice. Nice to know that the juices are still flowing. But straight men, a lot of straight men, the majority of straight men, um, 
they have not done the work to distance themselves from the power dynamics that happen in male-female interactions. And I'm not interested in helping them with that. It's not my, you know, if you want me to help people with that, pay me to write a book and I will happily do so, but not what I want to do in my spare time. Um, in terms of non straight men, you know, for whatever value value that is, you know, bi men, queer men, uh, trans men, all of those, uh, my age and size do not seem to be an impediment, and they certainly are not in the women's community. So heterosexuality has made some mistakes in terms of um, how it regards aging people. It's interesting you bring up, um, you know, daddy little girl play and, um, you know, all of that. It's one of those things that has stuck with me, and I had to read the this 25 years ago, is um, when Patrick Khalifa was running for IMSL um, as a leather dyke, one of the questions he got from the panel was, um, if you were to add a hanky to the the hanky coat, what would it be? And his answer was uh, pink with baby ducks for mommy fetish. I know he was looking at uh, doing an anthology on the topic back in the day, um, but I don't think it ever uh, came to came into reality. Yeah, he has doing it for daddy, but um, yeah, yeah, the, the mommy stuff isn't so much in there. But yeah, I'll have a link to readers because it's a really interesting approach to that whole dynamic. Because again, even in kink, we don't see much mommy fetish. We see like the stern disciplinarian. Yes, lots of that. And it often has a mommy tone to it. But yeah. I, I would be willing to do a scene as Auntie Janet or as you know, another female relative, because I've been a real world mom, I don't think being mommy would, would work for me. It would feel a little creepy. Um, but beyond that, yeah, it's just not a thing that comes up much. Although I think certain prodoms do quite well offering that as an option. Uh, it's not a, a group that has much representation visibly in the kink communities. For our listeners, if you caught the Mistress Shari interview, when I was interviewing her, one of the things she'll do is she was talking about is doing scenes where she would discipline somebody with, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed in you. Oh, nice. <laughs> All of us who grew up in real waspy culture, like that cuts to the core. Like that Bingo, is yeah. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, in the book, you have some of the some of the things you want on your your bucket list. Yes, right? and you you have a lovely list, and I'm sure for a few of them you will get volunteers. Um, do you have any plans to check any of those off soon? Uh, there are a few that I think you know. One of them was learning to paint portraits in oils, and when I find the right class, I'll practice that. And you know, I haven't used oils in years because they're such a mess. But it would be nice to know how to do. Um, I would like to go to Africa. I would like to go to Asia. Uh, and those are still certainly within my abilities to do. Not in, not in Edward's abilities to do. So I would have to travel with a friend or alone. But I've been doing that for years. I don't mind. Um, one of the things I mention is finding out whether the one time I ever had intercourse with an uncircumcised man with no condom and I came during vanilla sex for the first time in my life. I'm really curious to know if that's a fluke, but 
I have not had penetrative sex in over a decade, well over a decade. And as those of you in my age bracket know, uh, it tends to close up after a while, you know, the vaginal walls thin and lose that elasticity. So I would have to be working for a few months in advance with um, estrogen cream and dilators and all of that. And it's just not likely to ever come up, although I still wouldn't give it a flat no if it did. Um I forget what else was on the list. I won't get to have a giant dog because, A, we're getting set to move to an apartment in a senior community, and giant dogs take up a lot of space. And B, you know, if you get yanked off your feet by a giant dog when you're 30, you know, you scrape your knee. Uh, If it happens when you're 70, you break your hip. And that's a different story. So probably no giant dog. Um, I'm trying to think what else I put on that list. The Aurora Borealis. Oh, yes, I would love to see the Aurora Borealis. And it's not that far from here. You know, it wouldn't be too difficult to road trip up to Canada next time it's being brilliant. And go. the problem here in Eugene is not that it never comes here. It does very occasionally, but there's too much ambient light to see it. And so we would have to drive way out in the country to see it, and we haven't done that. Um, but yes, I would love to see the Aurora Borealis. Um If I had my druthers, I would spend the rest of my life skipping from one MFA program to another because the three years in my, two years rather, in my MFA program at St. Mary's was more damn fun. I mean, you know, I thought for a long time I was going to be paying off my student loans from the old folks home. But again, when, when I inherited money, I was able to take care of that. And two years with your primary goal being reading and writing and talking to other people who are also reading and writing. Oh my God, it was so much fun. Um, <laughs> and I would probably want to do one or two MFA programs in art as well, because I, as as you know, I've been working on my illustration skills. Um, the, the book has several of my drawings of aging perverts that I've known or imagined. Um, and I had a blast doing those. And they were, they were a lot of fun. Um, what are you currently grateful for? As someone who spent the first almost 50 years of my adulthood terrified about money all the time, having money, you know, they tell you it can't buy happiness. And no, I don't suppose it can, but it sure does make happiness easier. (laughs) I mean, if you're determined not to be happy, money isn't going to fix that. But it makes it it clears the decks for you to do things that do make you happy instead of going and doing whatever your shitty day day job might be. So yes, I'm very grateful for the money. Um, it's still sometimes very disorienting, but that's a really good problem to have, you know. I'm grateful to be in a supportive and fun relationship. Uh, in terms of my primary relationship, I am very grateful for my children who grew up to be terrific human beings. Um, and now I have a grandson who, too soon to tell, but I I kind of think he's going to grow up to be a terrific human being too. They just sent me a um, video. Apparently, the day that the hurricane hit LA, they were hunkered down in their little house and they had Singing in the Rain on TV, which seemed appropriate. And it's Felix dancing to the uh, Moses Supposes number in, in Singing in the Lane. Uh, it's just the cutest fucking thing you ever saw. Um, 
my daughter-in-law Destiny dances, and so she, he's seen dance Destiny working on her dance routines uh, with the TV on to play the music. So of course he's he's trying to dance too. Um, and so yeah, I, I love my family. I, I Frank and I make good kids, and they are great kids. What else am I grateful for? I'm grateful for my relative health. I mean, for going on 70, I have the the stent, which I, seems to have been a one-off. And other than that, you know, blood pressure is good. Heart rate is good. Lungs are great. Teeth are great. I seem to be managing pretty well so far, knock wood. And it's wonderful to hear. And and I hope 70 and beyond brings much, much joy. Um, My mother died at 74. Um, and I resemble her physically a great deal. But she also smoked for a lot of her life. I mean, she had stopped for 20 years before her lungs caught up with her. But I'm told, our doctor at the time told me that there's actually a particular genetic marker for people for whom smoking is not going to get cleared out of their lungs as fast or as efficiently. And so I'm assuming that I probably carry that. And I'm really glad that I never got seriously into the habit of smoking. Um, so I think there's every reason to believe that I will outlive her unless something disastrous happens. Because 74, that's a little sooner than I want to go. Yeah. It, it, the closer I get to it, the younger it feels. Uh. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm to the point now where if I were to go to the doctor next week and find out that I had something terminal, I have no big regrets. You know, there's, I would be bummed that I'm going to miss this or that event coming up. And I would be bummed for the people who are going to miss me, but I don't feel like I have any, you know, there's all those bucket list things, but none of them are crucial to my happiness. You know, I, I don't think that I've missed many of the things that I would otherwise have missed if I hadn't done my life the way I, I did. You know, I, I took the sex train all the way to the end. I raised kids. I ran a company. I wrote all these books. I, you know, it's been a it's been a good run. Which does not mean and that if the time comes that I'm terminal and know it, that I won't scream and fuss, because I think we're hardwired for that. But will it really, really distress me? I don't think so. I I, I hope not. <laughs> And only time will tell on that one. Um, it's quite true. And thank you for all of your work. It has been so quintessential to my own journey and to so many other people. And oh, I love reading everything you've put out, this book <laughs> included. So listeners, go pick up notes from an aging pervert. It will. It, it's just beautifully written. I loved it. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been wonderful. If any of your listeners are going to be at the Folsom Street Fair, I will be there signing books. And also a couple of nights before the Folsom Street Fair, I will be reading at Micro Black in San Francisco on Thursday night, the 21st, I think, or maybe 22nd. The 21st. And I only know that because I'm down there teaching. So I will be there and oh, get cool. to meet you in person. Okay. It's, it's Excellent. Wonderful. Looking forward to see you then. All right. It was you lovely talking to you. Do you want to plug any websites or anything before you go? I'm trying to get my website situation straightened out right now. My primary web, well, there's a, a website at notesofanagingperfect.com and another one at janetwhardyauthor.com, but that's a really long URL and I'm trying to buy back janethardy.com um, one day at a time. 
Anyway, in the meantime, if they're desperately curious, and I'm easy to find on Facebook as well, which is where I actually do the most of my posting because I'm old and that's what we do. <laughs> Thank you so much, listeners. We will have all of those links and more, including links to, to Janet's new book. Thank you so much for being here and have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you. And now, a moment of gratitude. As someone who spent the first almost 50 years of my adulthood terrified about money all the time, having money, you know, they tell you it can't buy happiness. And no, I don't suppose it can, but it sure does make happiness easier. Um, <laughs> I mean, if you're ter- determined not to be happy, money isn't going to fix that. But it makes it, it clears the decks for you to do things that do make you happy instead of going and doing whatever your shitty day, day job might be. So, yes, I'm very grateful for the money. Um, it's still sometimes very disorienting, but that's a really good problem to have, you know. I'm grateful to be in a supportive and fun relationship uh, in terms of my primary relationship. I am very grateful for my children who grew up to be terrific human beings. Um, and now I have a grandson who, too soon to tell, but I I kind of think he's going to grow up to be a terrific human being too. They just sent me a um, video. Apparently, the day that the hurricane hit LA, they were hunkered down in their little house and they had singing in the rain on TV, which seemed appropriate. And it's Felix dancing to the uh, Moses supposes number in, in singing in the lane. Uh, it's just the cutest fucking thing you ever saw. Um, <laughs> uh, my daughter-in-law destiny dances. And so she, he's seen dance destiny working on her dance routines uh, with the TV on to play the music. So of course he's, he's trying to dance too. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love my family. I, I, Frank and I make good kids, and they are great kids. What else am I grateful for? I'm grateful for my relative health. I mean, for going on 70, I have the, the stent, which I, seems to have been a one-off. And other than that, you know, blood pressure is good, heart rate is good, lungs are great, teeth are great. I seem to be managing pretty well so far, not good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.